Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. I bring you greetings from uh, uh, the uh, NBA champion, uh, Golden State Warriors. We gave you all a gift the other night. You should say thank you and count your blessings. Steph Curry didn't play. Draymond Green didn't play. We were playing with half a deck. Anyways, now that I've totally uh, disrespected the audience I'm trying to inspire, uh, it is so good to be with you all today. Let me just say thank you, thank you, thank you for the kind invitation to come and to share with you all uh, from the Word of God. Speaking of which, if you could meet me in the book of Hosea, thank you. That's where we're going to be hanging out for this first service. Don't know what I'm going to preach on yet for the second service, uh, but for this first service, we will be in Hosea uh, chapter 3. Love your pastor, uh, love his heart for you all and uh, for the city here. The only thing I don't like about him uh, is uh, my wife is from Chicago. You know where I'm going with this, and she is a huge Bears fan. Uh, in fact, number one on her bucket list is a Bears-Packers game at Soldier Field, which we're going to do here on December 16th. And I'm going to sit and freeze in Chicago to support a team I don't even like. Uh, but the things you do for love. Um, if you have your Bibles again, Hosea chapter 3, that's where we're going to be hanging out. Uh, we're going to walk through uh, this chapter. And uh, I believe that there are some things that God wants to say uh, to us uh, today. Oh, wow, they've got a, uh, a clock on me, 38 Minutes and 26, 25, 24 seconds. It's cruel and unusual punishment to a black preacher. I feel discriminated against. Let's hustle. Let me say a word of prayer and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you so much for uh, what you're doing in this section of the vineyard. Thanks for uh, the lives that are being shaped here. I'm, I'm just cognizant, Lord God, in a in a room this size, we're probably spanning the spiritual spectrum. There are probably people here who grew up in church and their earliest memories revolve around the church. And there's other people here today. This is maybe their first time in church, Lord God. And yet, as we are drawn in to your word and, uh, and what you're going to say, these timeless truths have just a way of penetrating hearts and lives, no matter where we may be. So, Father, would you do a special work here today? Uh, would you speak to us? Uh, would you challenge us? Uh, would you encourage us? Would you shape us? Uh, Father, it's to that end that I'm available to you. As the old African-American preachers used to say, would you stand in my body and think with my mind and speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do? Uh, but, Lord God, as my grandmother used to say, would you put shoe leather on your word today? Make it plain and practical. Show us how to walk in these truths. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. A young man sat down to have a conversation with an elderly woman. And not long into the conversation, this young man noticed that situated on the coffee table between he and this elderly woman was a dish filled with what looked like the most delightful, delectable peanuts he had ever seen in his life. To put it in the street vernacular, these peanuts looked off the chain. He was so distracted by these peanuts that he interrupted this elderly woman mid-sentence as she was bearing her heart. He says, excuse me, ma'am, but um, these peanuts look incredible. Do you mind if I have some? 
you would have thought he asked her for $10,000. She stopped and paused and thought about this request. An awkward silence ensued, and this man began thinking to himself during this pause, what in the world you would have thought I would have asked her for a lot of money? Finally, the elderly woman relented. She acquiesced and says, sure, go ahead. She continued bearing her soul as he reached into the dish, popped these peanuts into his mouth. And a few moments later, he looked down and much to his horror was an empty dish. He had consumed all of her peanuts. Embarrassed, he cut off this elderly woman once again. He says, ma'am, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I grew up in the South and my mama raised me better than this. But here I am, a guest in your house. And I done ate up all your peanuts. But I got to tell you, ma'am, they were off the chain. And I've got to know, ma'am, where in the world did you get these peanuts? Uh, this elderly woman now was really embarrassed. She paused for an even longer period of time. It felt like 30 seconds. In reality, it was no longer than 15 or 20. She turned a, a bright shade of red. Finally, she collected her thoughts and responded, Well, young man, as you can see, I'm an elderly woman. I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't have any teeth. These peanuts were once covered in chocolate. But because I don't have any teeth, I suck the chocolate off and spit them right back into the dish. The moral of the story is things are not always as they appear. And what's true of once chocolate-covered peanuts I fear is true of so many people who say they are Christian, but in reality, they are not. Not everybody talking about heaven, as my grandmama used to say, is going. This has its theological moorings in Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus is reaching the crescendo there for his great sermon on the mount. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says in so many words to the religious leaders of the day, I'm sorry, boys, I, I can't let you in. Shocked, they respond by saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Jesus jolts them into reality when he says, yes, but depart from me, I never knew you. C.S. Lewis, who in a lecture one day said to his students there at Oxford, that when we get to heaven, we will be surprised at two fronts. One, we will be surprised at who is there that we knew for sure would not be there. But two, C.S. Lewis says, we'll be surprised at who is not there that we knew for sure would be there. Salvation, it's a mystery. Well, how indeed do I know that I'm saved? Right on the heels of these jolting words in this chapter that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most harrowing chapter in all of the Bible, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, here's how you know, you shall recognize them by their fruit. Fruit. 
What is fruit? It is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood. But, but fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle that can only be blamed on the indwelling, filling of the Spirit of God pulsating through the life of a yielded believer. How do I know that I'm saved? It's not the fact that I go to church. It's not the fact that I've been to seminary. It's not the fact that I've, uh, I'm on an amazing, consecutive, quiet time streak. How do I know that I'm saved? Fruit. In other words, in layman's terms, every legitimate follower of Jesus Christ should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude two things. One, I have not all the way arrived yet. I'm a rough draft of my final version. I am a work in progress. I still say things I shouldn't say, think things I shouldn't think, do things I shouldn't do. I I haven't arrived to a state of sinless perfection. That will only happen at the state of glorification when I shall behold him face to face. But on the same accord, I should be able to look to the rearview mirror of my journey with Jesus and conclude that while I have not arrived, should be able to look back and say, I am not all the way where I once was. He's changing me. Oh, this is my second time speaking in Canada. I don't know if y'all getting this or not. I'm a chocolate preacher used to people talking back to me in the middle of the sermon. So please feel free to say amen. Uh, If you're ready for me to end, say bring it on home, brother. We will bring it on home, but talk to me. If I don't hear anything, I preach longer. And so here, every believer should be able to say, I haven't all the way arrived yet, but I'm not all the way where I once was. He's changing me. I'm, I'm being changed and transformed, as Paul would say, from glory to glory. In fact, I remember my pastor one day stood up in front of 13,000 people and said these words to them. Uh, if he said it to 13,000 people, I don't mind saying it to you. He says, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. Now, since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. (laughs) Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not condoning profane language, but there is plenty of truth in that. What is he saying? I haven't all the way arrived. If you cut me off on the freeway and the flesh is in control of my life, I might want to pull up alongside of you and speak to you in sign language. (laughs) But on the other hand, he's saying I'm not all the way where I once was. He's changing me. But what does that fruit look like? Writing to the Galatians, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Pay attention. I don't think there's any coincidence that the leadoff batter to the list is love. Gathered there in a little upper room right before he would be betrayed and crucified, Jesus says, by this will all men know that you're the real deal followers of me, not by the arguments you have on Facebook, but by this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love. Writing in 1 Corinthians 13, that great seminal New Testament text on love, 
It is a text many of you had read at your weddings. Paul writes, now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I love what one New Testament scholar says. He says, love is the MVP of all New Testament virtues. Or to say it another way, an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. The badge of the believer. What authenticates the validity of your Christianity is not your church membership. It's not the songs you sing. It is your love to a lost and dying world. There's a great Robert Smith Jr., that great homiletician professor there at the Beeson Divinity School who said, Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. If the point we've been making is love, that is our most powerful witness to a dying world, then the seminal Old Testament picture for love. If you want to know what love looks like in real time, it's found in Hosea 3. I want to read the whole chapter to you. Chill out, it's just five verses. Hosea writes in Hosea chapter 3, pick me up in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is, not used to be, is, not was, an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Look at verse 2, pay careful attention to it. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without, without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. When we come to the book of Hosea, God pulls Hosea to the side and he says, Hosea, I've got a problem here. I've entered into covenant with Israel. I've gotten married to Israel. But my spouse, Israel, is a serial adulterer. She keeps cheating on me, God tells Hosea, by his phrase, whoring after other gods. And yet, God says to Hosea, my real problem is not that I've, I've married a people who have compromised their vows. My real problem is, is that even though they've given me biblical rights to divorce them, in my holiness, in righteousness, in my grace and mercy, I cannot divorce them. I'm in covenant with them, not in contract. You should know, parenthetically, there is a difference. When God took you to be his bride, he entered into covenant with you, not contract. Contracts are performance-oriented. 
contracts say you do your part, and if you hold up to your end of the deal, you'll be loved more, more secure. But the moment you fail, you'll be thrown out. Some of you are salespeople. If you hit your numbers, you get the bonus. You, you, you maybe get promoted. If you don't hit your numbers, you're, you're going to get banished from the company. Those are contracts, but that's not how salvation works. It's a covenant. It's not based on your performance. It's not quid pro quo. It is a covenant based on God's grace and mercy. And newsflash, God has more mercy than you have mess. If I was in a chocolate church, boy, they'd be throwing stuff at me, running around the building. God has more mercy than you have mess. There's no statute of limitations. As far as the east is from the west, is as far as he has removed your sins. He's in covenant. So God says, Hosea, I, I want to show my people that I love them, and that it is a performance-free love. And I want to use you to show them that there is nothing they could ever do to make me turn my back on them. I love them. If I'm Hosea, I'm maybe Hosea saying, okay, God, what do you have in mind? You, you want me to preach a sermon on love? God shakes his head and says, no. Maybe Hosea says, wait a minute, God, what do you want me to do? You mean to write a book? God says, well, that'll come later. God says, no, Hosea, I, I'm thinking of using you as my divine show and tell for how deeply and profoundly I love my people. Jose, I, I, I know you're single. I know you've just graduated from seminary. I know you just got called to pastor your first church, and you're a single pastor, and I'm going to solve that, Hosea, because I've got a wife picked out for you. If I'm Jose, I'm getting excited right now. There's a smile etched all across my face, and all of a sudden it goes away. I can see Hosea saying to God, well, God, what is her name? God says, her name is Gomer. Now, at that point, I ain't smiling anymore because I've never met a cute Gomer in my life. <laughs> no offense if that's your name. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Hosea, chapter 1, she's a prostitute. Now, if I'm Hosea, I'm like, whoa, 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 God. I, I, I can't do that. I mean, just imagine, God, the installation service at my, at my church, the first time they, they, they really meet us as a couple, walking down the center aisle. Can't you just see it? The preacher, the prophet with the prostitute, the man of God with the woman of the night. No, God, that's too strange of a sight. And God says, that's exactly the point. Because remember, Hosea, this marriage ain't about you. But this marriage is to give the world a peek into my inexhaustible love for them. And Hosea, if you think it's strange that you, a preacher, would be married to a prostitute, I can up the ante and do you one stranger. The fact that I, a holy God, have hitched my wagon to you in covenant is a stranger sight. 
What does it mean to love? How do I know I'm, I'm really walking in love? Hosea 3 tells us, if it don't ever get strange, if there ain't a weird factor to it, it probably ain't love. My youngest son is a baller. He loves basketball. He plays really well. We played on two all-city. He played on two all-city uh, all-star teams in, in New York. Um, in fact, uh, tonight he's being recruited. He's got a private workout. He's an eighth grader. Uh, I wish I could be there for it. I'm just going to miss it. Um, kid, around our house, we call him RP. Retirement plan. <laughs> and I'm saving receipts. I'm saving them. I'm saving them. Uh, no, just joking. Well, kind of, sort of. But anyways. So when we first moved to the Bay Area, he, he got on with one of the top teams in the Bay. And, and his first tournament was in San Francisco. And uh, we're there excited to support him. And we're sitting in the stands. And my son's the, the, the two guard. He's the shooting guard. And... Um, He's like Clay Thompson, to give you a little bit of, of perspective on that. I won't chase that rabbit anymore, but he's the two guard. And, and, and the point guard, we were sitting down next to the point guard's two moms. Lesbian couple, married to each other. And they're just being a couple, doing what couples do. And my wife and I get to know them, hear, hear a little bit about them. We exchange phone numbers and, and invite them over to the house for dinner and my wife and I got into the car after the tournament and made the, way, made the drive back from San Francisco to San Jose. And my wife and I turned to each other, and in so many words, we, we just wondered aloud to each other, what if God is calling us not to change them? For we can't change anybody. I can't even change myself. What if God's calling us to love them? So we invite them over to the house and good food, good drink. And, you know, they're, they're doing what couples do and we're doing what couples do. And, and I grew up in the South back in the 70s and 80s. And, and it's strange to me. And all that fall season, they're hanging out with us. We're enjoying great conversation. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, please don't ask me what I do for a living. <laughs> and sure enough, we make it through the fall season and they, they don't ask me. And we're building this rich relationship. Spring season starts, they're over one night and in the middle of dinner, one of them says, hey, Brian, we've been hanging out for a while. We, we've never asked you, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. I tell people how to find true meaning, value, fulfillment, and significance in life through God's only son, Jesus Christ. One of them got frustrated, grabbed her purse, made her way through to the door. As she was going to the door, I heard her mutter under her breath, never saw that coming. And I'm thinking to myself, and y'all call us judgmental? But as a pastor, you can't say everything you think. I crack a joke, ease the air a bit. She comes back to the table. We finish up the evening. Next couple of weeks, we stitch it back together. We're all good. 
And finally, about two months later, they called me up and they said, hey, Brian, our son is getting to the age where we just feel like he needs a, a positive, strong male voice in his life. Brian, as you know, we live far away from you, but, but we feel strongly that you need to be that voice in his life. So we've, uh, we've sold our home and we've moved into a home a couple streets down from you because we think you need to be investing in his life. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> they happen to be an atheist couple. And in the same conversation, she says, oh, and we're going to have a whole bunch of people over for a housewarming, and we were wondering if you'd come over and, um, and bless our house. I said, as in pray to God? <laughs> she says, yeah, do your thing. So my wife and I leave church on Sunday, hustle over there. And we get there, and it's wall-to-wall people. And, and from the looks of things, my wife and I are the only heterosexual couple in the house. And it feels strange. The whole time we're there, having a good time, playing pool, eating good food, and we notice a person keeps snapping pictures of us. The next day is a Monday. I'm in my office, and my wife sends me a text. Honey, they done tagged us on Facebook. <laughs> a couple hours later, one of the old 80-something-year-old mothers of our church calls me. She said, Pastor, I was on Facebook. <laughs> when an 80-something-year-old tells you they was on Facebook. Her words, not mine. Is my pastor partying with homosexuals? Because the Jesus I know, she said, would never party with homosexuals. Now, there's a verse in the Bible I do not like. I wish I could cut this verse out. It says, do not rebuke an older person. I don't know about you, I know a lot of older folk who need to be rebuked. No comment. I says, Mother, you might want to read upon Jesus again. Because if you looked who Jesus hung out with, he had some strange company. A couple weeks later, we, we came to this couple. We said, look, crazy idea. I, I know you'll need time to think about it, but we're about to go on summer vacation, and we're going to go to New York and then to a Christian camp down in South Carolina. We'd love to take your son with us. Um, we'll pay for everything. It's 3,000 miles away. I, I know it's a huge, huge ask to take your son from California to New York City down to South Carolina, so please think about it, but we'd love to take him. And they, they said, don't even think about it. He can go with you. Last night of camp, this young man said, Mr. Loritz, can I talk to you? We take a walk down a lighted path. He says, Mr. Loritz, will you show me how to become a Christian? 
I want to know this Jesus you talk about. And on a lighted path, he prayed to receive Christ. A couple months ago, I was gearing up to baptize him. And his mother said, Brian, we want to come. The Christians have hurt us. Is your church a safe place for us? I said, as long as I'm the pastor, it is. And I baptized that young man, came out of the pool, changed into my clothes, and sat on the front row, the preacher with the lesbian couple. Strange. How strange is your table? How strange is your community? I'm not calling that couple strange, but sadly, I'm calling our friendship strange. Because even in this day to the church, we draw these lines that Jesus doesn't draw. Jesus ate with tax collectors. Jesus once went to a party where a prostitute was rubbing his feet. How strange is your community? How strange are your friendships? I got to hustle. I got 10 minutes and 26, 25, <laughs> 24 seconds. Got to hustle. Got to hustle. By the time we get to chapter 3, something's happened. The marriage has gone south. They're separated. We know this because if you look at verse 1, the first words out of God's mouth is, Hosea, go again, which means they're separated. We know why they're separated because the text tells us she is an adulteress, which means she's cheated on him. Now, if I'm Hosea, I'm saying, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah. I never wanted her in the first place. That was your idea, not mine. In fact, God, your word says that if a person cheats on their spouse, I have biblical rights to divorce them. So I'm done. God says, wait a minute, Hosea. This marriage is not about your marriage. It is to tell the truth about my relationship with the world. And if every time you messed up with me, I would have wiped my hands clean of you, you wouldn't have made it out the first day. So, Hosea, I need you to do to her what I do to you daily, several times throughout the day. I need you to go again and go again and go again and go again. Who have you given up on in your life? What relationship have you murdered? 
Do your relationships tell the truth about how God deals with you? Watch it, verse 2. Hosea says, don't miss it. So I bought her, watch it now, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. This blesses me. Gomer is being, there's no other way to say it, she's being, in modern parlance, what we would call sex trafficked. The going rate to emancipate a woman who was being trafficked, like Gomer is, was 30 shekels. So why doesn't Hosea say, so I bought her for 30 shekels? Commentators tell us the reason he doesn't say, I bought her for 30 shekels, but instead says, I bought her for 15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley is answer. He never, he didn't have 30 shekels. I, I can just see him now rummaging through his house, uh, looking under the bed, digging in between sofa cushions, and the most he can come up with is 15 shekels, taking it to the auctioneer, saying, will you take this? This is all I've got. Auctioneer says, no, it's got to be 30 shekels, and they negotiate. What if I bought a homer and a lethic of barley? Sure, I'll take that. Watch it now. To emancipate the one who cheated on him cost him everything. If it ain't strange, it ain't love. And if it ain't costing you, it ain't love. But isn't that our problem? If I was in, if I was in the States, whatever your most expensive department, do they have Nordstrom's here? Our problem is we want Nordstrom quality community at thrift store prices. We just want easy relationships. Most of us, at the beginning of a relationship with someone, friendship, whatever it may be, we said something like, this is just so easy. And then it don't get easy. Because they're a sinner. And so are you. Which means relationships are hard. And we don't want to be inconvenienced. But the very nature of love is inconvenience. Paul says to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. The story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus answering the question of what it means to love your neighbor, and it's a person who is inconvenienced by his time, inconvenienced by his money, bears this person's burden. If you're not being inconvenienced, you're not loving. So I gotta ask you, what relationships are you bringing your 15 shekels of silver and a homer, and a lethic of barley. If I were to stop right here, though, we would leave with the notion that love makes us doormats. That love is this spineless thing. Here it is. If I were to stop the message right here, we could easily equate love with tolerance. 
Love is not tolerance. Tolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you. Give me a break. We're not called to tolerate. It's the way of the world. Called to love. Let's go home on this one. Verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, a homer, and a lethic of barley. Notice what he says next, after he redeems her. And I said to her, you must not play the whore. Love is strange. Love is costly. Thirdly, love has a standard. Love has a standard. My flight leaves at 6.30 tonight, and this is going to get me in trouble. But your pastor will put it back together next week. This lesbian couple, we've been loving on them, loving on them. They were just over for Thanksgiving. Had a great time with them, and there were some awkward moments, awkward moments, but just great time. About six months ago, they came to me and said, hey, hey, hey. Hey, Brian, we'd love for you to do our vow renewal ceremony. Backed me in a corner. My heart's beating through my chest because I love these people. I said, look, am I allowed to think differently than you on something and not be called a bigot? Because my understanding of love is you love people while you don't approve of all their decisions. I got three teenage boys. I love them to death, to death. But I don't approve of everything they do. I said, I love you, I love you, I love you. We've had great time, good food, good drink. I can't do the vow renewal. And I just kind of step back. <laughs> they said, oh, you're being dramatic. We, we knew you probably couldn't be able to do it. We just thought we, we'd ask. And that was it. Like, I'm, I'm waiting on some big drama, some big, and, and I think the reason why it didn't have all that is at the end of the day, I had made so many love deposits in their account. These people aren't position papers to me. They're not projects. They're image bearers. May we never forget. There's a standard. But watch it. Please notice the flow of the text. He redeems her first then gives her the standard. That's the gospel. Had he given her the standard, he would have made her redemption conditional upon her obedience to the standard. But He redeems her first, then gives her the standard. Why? So that her obedience would not be in the category of duty, but delight. I want to live up to this. Because of of infinite cost to yourself. 
You redeemed me. And I got to tell you, friends, I've been preaching this thing wrong for the last 40 minutes. This text isn't ultimately about how we love other people. It's really God's love for us. Don't you see? We're all Gomer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And until you see yourself as Gomer, you will never love like this. The number one thing that will impede your love is a stinking, hypocritical self-righteousness in which you think you don't need God's love for yourself. The moment I see I'm Gomer, that every day, God goes again with me that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid his 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, and he sets the standard, but he doesn't make that conditional. It is, I remember Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness that leads to my repentance. It is not my repentance that leads to God's kindness. Oh, may you be a loving Christian who always keeps in touch with your inner Gomer, who knows the love of God. It's only then that you can pass it on to others. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, for this people in this section of your vineyard, for what you're doing here, for the lives that are being touched and changed, We bless you. Father, I believe there's a Gomer here today that needs to know you for the first time. This amazing, amazing, inexhaustible love. Yes, indeed, how deep the Father's love is for us. There's no statute of limitations to it. There's no expiration date on it. It's not conditional. It's not transactional. It's not quid pro quo. It just reaches down and grabs us. Then, Lord God, there's other people here today. They would claim to be your kids. But, Lord, they don't love like this. They veered off course. They're Pharisees. They're professional referees pointing out the faults in others, pointing out the specks in other people's eyes. Well, they do not notice. Matthew 7 tells us the log that is in their own eye. Oh, God, help us to see that we were all on the auction block. And at infinite cost to yourself, you redeemed us by your grace. And we pass that on to others. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means we love. In Jesus' name, amen.